Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 108 of Carol Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week is a blues rock guitarist who keeps pushing forward while staying true to his roots, Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Now, honoring the past is something that blues artists do. They're aware of the traditions, the musicians who paved the way for where they are now. In Shepard's case, we're talking about heroes such as B.B. King and Albert King, who could say so much with so few notes. Since Shepard's 1995 debut album, Lead Better Heights, released when he was just 18 years old, he has been considered one of his generation's blues rock torchbearers. His second album, 1997's Trouble Is, features what has become Shepard's signature song, Blue on Black. Hey, blue on black, tears on a river, push on a shove, it don't mean that song hit number one on Billboard's Hot Mainstream Rock Tracks chart and won the Billboard Music Award for Rock Track of the Year. Also, Trouble Is was named Billboard's Blues Album of the Year. When he wrote and recorded Blue on Black, did he think it was a song he'd be playing for the next 25 years and beyond? What had to fall into place for Blue on Black to become a hit, and could that happen now? Fast forward to today, as Shepard recently finished touring behind the album he released last December, Trouble Is... 25. With much music released in between, Shepard went back to re-record his most popular album from the perspective of a 45-year-old instead of a 20-year-old. He talks about those contrasts here. And on November 17th, Shepard is releasing an entirely new album, Dirt on My Diamonds, Volume 1, with another tour to follow in early 2024. These songs have a modern snap to them, such as the ultra-catchy Sweet and Low and the insightful ballad You Can't Love Me. You can't love me if you don't love you. Even as they also leave room for his trademark solos. Volume 1 implies Volume 2. But the 30th anniversary of Lead Better Heights also is coming up. One foot in the future and one foot in the past. Do more of his songs start with riffs or lyrical ideas and how does he get them down when they come to him? Why did he decide he wanted to work with songwriting collaborators and how do those collaborations work? How does he figure out the right musical and emotional setting for each solo? How has his playing changed from when he started? When he performs old songs, does he try to recreate what he did back then or interpret them anew? Kenny Wayne Shepherd has been playing the blues since he was a kid, and in this carol pop conversation, he shares much of what he has learned. Enjoy. So this new album, Dirt on My Diamonds, Volume One, I should say. Uh, did you start writing this in 2019? Yeah, I have to look up the dates, but it was either it may have actually some of it been written in 2018 as well. But you know, we're always kind of like accumulating songs here and there, you know. But like pre-pandemic, though. Yeah, absolutely. Did you do this after you you had recorded, or you knew you were doing um, "Trouble Is 25? Or like, what was <laughs> yeah, so, so that actually started. I can't remember when we started recording "Trouble Is 25, but that was way before we initially started the "Trouble Is 25th Anniversary" recordings. Yes, before this, without a doubt. But we knew, so it became clear the series of events that was going to happen, right? Like that we were coming up on the 25th anniversary of trouble is just as things were starting to 
get ease out of the pandemic and musicians were getting back to work and things like that. And so that was going to come first, right? So that became the priority was to finish that recording and get that out and then finish this stuff up in the meantime, after we did, uh, after we released the 25th anniversary of Trouble Is. So you've had like one foot in the past and one in the future for a while because you've been touring that album, but you'd already recorded or at least written this album. So you're kind of mm-hmm. thinking in both both tenses. Yeah, definitely. And still doing still doing the same thing because we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of Ledbetter Heights. And you know, we had started recording a new version of the Ledbetter Heights album as well. So I got to finish that up while all while we're releasing this album and, and possibly the volume two prior to the 30th anniversary of uh, Ledbetter Heights. So, yeah, there's definitely still one foot in the past and one foot in the present and the future, you know. Did revisiting an album that you'd done when you were 20, 25 years later, kind of influence what you were doing moving forward on, uh, you know, Dirt on My Diamonds? I I don't know about that. I mean, I, I guess anything that you're involved in might, you know, influence everything that you're involved in. But I don't, I don't know that that necessarily, I mean, look, my, my process of making writing records, recording records, um, all of that stuff has, has remained pretty consistent since day one. It's just been an, a, a gradual evolution, but n- we've just never been any real invention of how I make records or how I record them or how I write songs. It's just, you know, been things that have, we've honed in on the craft over the years. Right. So I think it's kind of always been the same. So what's the process? Are, do you get your guys in a room and or do you kind of accumulate things as you're going along? Like you come up with a riff here and a lyrical idea over here and you put them in a notebook and then say, OK, I'm going to, you know, collaborate or like, how does it work? Yeah, that's exactly it. I, I just collect ideas uh, over time. And I looked in my phone the other day and I think there was like 732 different uh, recordings that of ideas that I have stored in my phone. That's just in the voice memos, right? And then I have like in the, in the, on the notes app, I have like all kinds of different song titles and lyric ideas and things like that. So I just collect those things. And then when it comes time to make a record, I start sifting through them and figure out which ones are really kind of speaking to me at the time. And then I'll narrow it down from there. And then, uh, and then the decision has to be made, well, who do you write these songs with? Cause I prefer to, uh, to co-write and collaborate with other people. Right. So then it's like choosing the right, uh, collaboration to get the end result, uh, to get the desired end result. You know? Right. So you go back to these voice memos and are these like words or are these, these kind of going like, bam, 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 about, you know, or something like that. Yeah, no, sort of thought that. Some of it's guitar licks, like some of it's sound check recordings where I'll have an idea while when I'm checking my rig and I'll record that. Some of it's acoustic. Some of it is me humming melodies into the phone. Some of it is, you know, just a, literally a, a line that I think would be a good line in a song. I mean, it's it's all over the place. Some of it is just a full on groove, you know. Right. Um, yeah. There's uh, any any number of potential uh, little ideas in there. Is there any consistency to where these ideas come to you? I mean, do you tend to be working or are you just like out for a walk or on your bike? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, got to pull over and sing something in the voice memo. Well, generally I have to have a guitar in my hands, right? (laughs) It's like, so I'll just be noodling around and then something will come. Um, Or a lot of times it's like if I'm falling asleep Mm. and I'll just be in that in-between 
state, you know, of starting to fall asleep. The other day, man, I had this, I had a dream and I was playing a song in the dream and it was so good. And I, when I woke up, I couldn't remember what it was, but I mean, seriously, it was a completely original song. It was like, I've never played it. It's never been recorded. Like, you know, it's not something else. It was like a completely original idea. The whole song was there. I was playing it in my dream and I was sitting there going, wow, this is really great. And then when I woke up, I could not remember how it went. It's just, really it's just, it just evaporated when you, when you woke up. Yeah. Ah, uh, that's, that's it. Supposedly that's how yesterday got written. You know, Paul McCartney <laughs> woke up singing scrambled eggs, baby. I love you. Love your legs to that melody. And then, obviously came up with better words. Yeah, I, I totally believe that. So who are the collaborators and for this album, for instance, and are you working with different pairs of people or are you sort of working with other, you know, a group of people at the same time and just kind of hammering it all out in a room? How does it work? Well, it's different. I mean, uh, I've been working with some new guys as of, uh, well, when I started doing the late on down record and then the traveler record, which basically was the first time I worked with Marshall Altman as a producer, co-producer. And, uh, we started, you know, that was, uh, I reached a point where I was like, I was like, you know, I've been writing with the same people, which I really love and, and still write with a lot of those people to this day from the very beginning of my career. But I thought, you know, it's, it's easy and it's comfortable and I know that it works. And so that's one of the reasons why I keep doing it, but it's like, you know, real growth happens when you push yourself out of your comfort zone. And I realized that in order to do that, I wanted to grow some more. And in order to do that, I had to get myself, I had to be uncomfortable and getting uncomfortable is getting into a room, uh, you know, with a guy or a girl that you've never written a song with before and seeing if there's going to be chemistry because you can't fake the chemistry. You can't manufacture that. It either works or it doesn't. And that can be uncomfortable at first. And so I met a lot of these guys. Marshall introduced me to some of them. And uh, we started writing songs a couple records back and uh, found figured out, you know, which ones were working really well and have continued to write with those guys. And some of these guys on this record I was writing with still for the first time as well. So there was some new collaborators on this record. Um, so continuing with that theme, but yeah, just working with those guys is, you know, kind of brought me into, you know, a new era, um, you know, for my music and stuff. And, and, uh, it always inspires new things when you bring, um, new personalities into the equation. So, um, it, it's been really cool, but, you know, oftentimes when we write, it, it generally stems from, uh, one of these 700 ideas that I have in my right. phone and kind of the starting point. So the starting point is something you bring in and then you're like, okay, let's, let's finish this one up. Usually, but you know, there's sometimes like the song sweet low, uh, this guy, Philip white was one of the guys who I wrote that song with. And, and, you know, we were meeting up and he had just come from the coffee shop and he was like, man, I just saw sweet low sitting on the thing. And I was putting to, you know, get preparing my coffee and just something about the sweet low just really jumped out at me. And I think maybe we can do something with that. And it's really? like, yeah. And one of the things about being a, a writer is like, you know, great writers is like they great writers pay attention to what's going on around them all the time. They find ideas, you know, whether it's something somebody says or, you know, something that's written on a wall or whatever it is. And sometimes it might sound really trivial or really like silly or whatever, but I've learned to just go with it because you never know, man, like where inspiration might come from. And that's literally how that song started. It's like he went and got some coffee before the writing session and came in talking about the Sweden low packets, you know? 
See, that surprises me because I would have thought that would have been one that started with the music because it's catchy as hell, right? Well, no, it did. I had the music. His whole idea for the song title was based on his experience at the coffee shop. So he says that. And then I go flipping through my phone and I'm like, well, what about this music? And they're like, oh, yeah, I like that. And so then we, you know, he's got the title. I've got the music. And then we Boom. hammer rest, you know. Right. You can't love me, you know, has that line in it, which, you you know, you're sort of teasing and then you finally get there where you're like, you can't love me if you don't love you. And that's and that seems like something that that could have been a starting point for the song. And I don't know if it was or not, but that's like kind of a key. Like I could see that being sort of the hook, like, all right, that's a line that deserves a song. Is that Mm -hmm. how that one worked? I don't remember how that one actually the exact way that it unfolded other than Philip was one of the same guys. Uh, that was actually the three of us, me, Marshall and Philip wrote sweet and low and you can't love me together. And that might've been like the same writing session. But, um, I think Philip actually was like playing something on the guitar and he was like, you know, how do you like this? And I was like, all right, well, how do you, how about we do it this way? And blah, blah, blah. I think that one generally started with the music. I'm not sure how we got around to the hook, but it sounds like something Philip would have come up with. In a good collaboration, you know, people are balancing each other out. What is it that you feel like with you, you want to have balanced out when you're working with someone? Well, I just, you know, first I started writing with other people because I was not a singer. And I needed somebody to come and help from the singer's perspective, you know, because I had no problem with the music. I got music all day long. I got arrangements. I got bridges. I got grooves. I got licks. I got chords. You know, I had no problem with that. I got lyrics, too. I mean, but, you know, there's obviously better lyricists out there than me, too. But like when you when you get together with somebody that's talented in those areas. You know, I look for people who bring things to the table that, that I feel where I'm lacking. And in the early days, it was like, I needed somebody to figure out the vocal melody and the vocal phrasing and, you know, where to place all of that kind of stuff as well, as well as helping with lyrics and stuff. So I think that when you find those guys, it's like you find different people bring different things to the table. And what's cool is like everybody has a different perspective. So we can have this common idea, but everybody's kind of looking at it from a different perspective. So all these different ideas get brought into the picture. And then you kind of pick and choose which ones, you know, make the most sense and make for the best song. Do you look at the song also as you're writing it like, okay, and we need a spot for like a really great guitar solo, um, you know, or a place to showcase this. I mean, that's, it's what you do. So is that just kind of built into like sort of organically to the creation of each song? And Well, every song, there's a spot for a solo. So, you know, the question is, is, you know, is the solo best played over the same figure as the verse or is it best played over the chorus or do we need to create an entirely new musical figure for the guitar solo to play over. So how do you challenge yourself to kind of come up with something new? Cause you've obviously played a lot of solos in your life and there are a lot of solos out there, but like, how do you sort of push yourself forward on that? Well, you know, I try and incorporate some new things, but you know, I, I'm, I'm one of those, I mean, I looked at a lot of my heroes like BB King and Albert King and those guys. I mean, you know, Albert King, doesn't play a whole lot of licks. No. But like, man, the ones that he plays, when he plays them, nobody can play them that good. And, and and it never gets old, really. Like, I don't ever get tired of hearing Albert King play those licks, you know. And um, I don't have the, the largest vocabulary in guitar, you know, by far. 
But what I do very, very well, I believe, is is I put the emotion in every single note. Like I put 150% feeling and emotion in every note that I play. And so it's really become, you know, how do I just convey the the emotion through what I'm playing, the appropriate emotion for the song through what I'm playing. And that's, you know, the thing that really changes the most, I think, is the format of the song or the structure of the song, or the idea of the song itself, not necessarily all the, the licks that are played in the guitar solos. for a non-alcoholic alternative to beer? Revolution Brewing is now offering Super Zero, a sparkling hop water that delivers the citrusy hop flavor you'd expect from the makers of the best-selling Antihero IPA. In fact, Super Zero matches Antihero's hop dosing rate as it uses two contemporary hop varieties that win out for flavor and refreshment. Not only does Super Zero contain no alcohol, there are also no calories, carbohydrates, or sugars. It's available in six packs at stores and on revbrew.com. I know certainly as a writer, when I was in my 20s, I was I was more conscious of trying to impress people with my chops, in this case, writing chops. Is that something that you would say applied to you as a guitarist, where maybe when you're younger, you're thinking more of the impression you're making, and now you're like, you know what, this is what I do. Yeah, I mean, uh, when you're a kid, you're always trying to prove yourself, right? Especially if you have an opportunity, you got a shot. It's like you're out to show the world, like, I belong here. I deserve to be here. This is who I am. You know, trying to proclaim something and, and establish your identity. But, you know, I've been doing this almost 30 years now. So I reached the point a while ago where it was like, I, I feel like I, I don't have to prove myself any longer. I don't have to prove that I deserve to be here. I've earned my spot here. Now it's like you know, this is who I am as an artist. You know, these are the things I feel inspired to write and record right now. And I think the fans really appreciate that. I think that's what it means to be a true artist is to, to be inspired in different ways and follow that musical mood muse, right. Wherever it might take you. And, and sometimes, you know, you might write a song and your fans might go, oh, I don't know about that song, but it's like, you know, they respect that you're going it in the direction you feel inspired to go into. Right. And my people have been with me along for all kinds of different things over the years. I mean, from like totally traditional blues albums to straight ahead, rock and roll albums and everything in between. Right. When you, when you look back on your peak moments, are they when you're on stage and, you know, unveiling a new song or really doing a great performance of a new song, or are they maybe when you're creating a new song, it's coming together in the studio? Like, what are those peak moments for you creatively? Well, the peak moment for me is like, well, first is the writing process, like getting the finished product where everybody in the room goes, that's done. And that's great. And we're really happy with that. And, you know. Then the recording process, when you watch it come to life in the studio, because all my demos are just acoustic guitar and, and vocal. Like, so we do very basic demos because we want the magic to happen in the studio. Cause what's the point going in the studio? Like that's what you watch all those videos of the Beatles, right? Like making those records and figuring out all that stuff and right. it's coming 
you know, like that's how I make records. That's how I feel like records are supposed to be made instead of all this predetermined stuff and emailing, you know, files back and forth across the country and, you know, nobody ever playing in the room together at the same time. So, you know, watching the songs come to life, you know, and then when you finally finish mixing and mastering a record and it sounds great, you know, the fidelity is just the way you want it, you know, and then finally bringing it to the stage. And, you know, there's in all honesty, there's some songs that on every record that just don't, they're great in the studio, but they're not live songs for the set. They don't translate as well. They're they're amazing to listen to, but like when you play them, it just doesn't fit because in the set for me, we have a, a catalog, we have a extensive catalog of music right. have to include in the show. Right. And so it's just, sometimes those songs just don't mesh well with the other songs that are necessary, um, that, that need to be in the set from other records as well. So there's some songs you might not ever hear. That's why it was unusual for us when we did this trouble is 25 record in tours. We played that whole album from start to finish live in concert every night. Some of the songs we had never really uh, played anywhere near on a regular basis ever, even back in the nineties, you know? So, yeah, I was wondering if some of those had never really gotten played because they were just like, ah, you know, I mean, you only had two albums at that point. So you would have likely played a lot of that record anyway, but it's true. But once you, uh, that only cause you had to, right. Not because it was necessarily the best song for the set, but then you get the next thing, you know, the third record comes out. Now you got more songs then other ones start to kind of fall off the playlist for the live show. And then the next thing, you know, it's been 20 years since you played some of those songs, you know? Did you feel the need to play them as they are on the record as everyone? I'd read that you'd done sort of two versions of that album. One was kind of closer to the original and one was like taken off a little more, but you decided that wasn't the way to go. But but live, I wonder whether you gave yourself a little more leeway on that. We did on certain songs, but for the most part, I would say, you know, we stuck. We wanted it to be a, a, like a live album listening experience, you know, um, and then but there was a couple songs like Long Gone. We stretched that out into a, you know, that was a a barn burner and everybody took solos and it was very extended version of, of that song. And I don't live today. The Jimi Hendrix cover kind of turned into a psychedelic guitar moment, you know, and, uh, lots of feedback and, you know, Jimi Hendrix type things going on on stage. And, um, yeah, so some of them were definitely were platforms to kind of like, uh, cut loose on. Um, but, I would say a lot of them were very close to the sound of the record. When you finished writing and recording Blue on Black in the first place, did you think, oh, well, there's a song that's going to be a big hit and I'm going to be playing it for the next 25 years? No, we, no, because I was not, um, I was not so naive to think that I had it all figured out, right? Like I never, ever from the beginning of my career and still to this day, um, you know, I didn't know what to expect from the people and you still don't know what to expect. Right. Um, I know that I can expect support from my fans cause they've been with me a lot of them for almost 30 years. So I know I can go make a record that I feel inspired to make and they're going to be there with me. You know, even if one of them doesn't like it, they're going to, they'll be, they'll show up for the next record. You know what I'm saying? Cause they love us as a band and, and me as an artist. But, um, we put out the first record. I had no idea what to expect. We knew blue on black was special. Like we knew without a doubt that it was special. Um, when we wrote it, 
And then when we recorded it and we were in the mixing studio and, and Tom Lord Algie was mixing it, we're playing the final version of it and people are dancing and high-fiving and hugging. And it's like, we knew we had something special, but there's so, there's so much more required than just a great song. There's a lot of, it didn't become hits because the right team wasn't in place or they didn't execute their jobs. Right. It's like, you don't win football games with one guy. It's a group effort. Right. And this is a group effort too. So you gotta have, um, the, the radio uh, promotion staff has to do their job. You know, all the regional reps have to do their job. Like the radio stations have to get on board. They have to play it. They have to push it. The people have to respond to it. It's like, there's so many things where if at any point along the way, somebody's not doing their job, it can affect the overall outcome of the success of the song. So we didn't know it was going to be as big as it was, but I was certainly, I mean, when it was all said and done, I'm like, yo, I knew it was a great. I, yes, I did know it was a great right. song. Didn't know it was going to do what it did. It wasn't like the, oh, I did, I, we thought this other song was the song. You guys knew that was the song. It was just a matter of whether it would it would work oh, yeah. or not. No, without a doubt. When, when, when we planned the release for uh, like the order of singles for that record, it was all leading up to that song, without a doubt. Could a hit like that happen now just because of the way music industry and radio i mean i know you know radio because you grew up with your dad in radio is is that kind of a hit you know even possible now or is it or, or it is possible but just in a different form because it's going to be you know online and on youtube instead of on a radio station or something yeah it's just different i mean but that song went to number one again back in 2018 five finger death punch did it recovered it and i played on uh a version of it with them and they have Brian May from Queen play guitar on it and Brantley Gilbert. There you go, right. And they released it and it went to number one 20 years later, right? So this is literally 20 years after and it went to number one on the rock charts again, right? It's just different because if I did it in today's world, it wouldn't happen because there the format, the radio format that embraced me uh, doesn't really exist anymore. Like mainstream rock radio doesn't really exist in the large degree anymore so there's not a big platform for people who have the blues label on them right uh, if you're uh, at, at like a heavier rock band like those guys then yeah you can run it up the charts and have a number one song if you're a country artist you can have a hit with it um and then you look at like that i mean there's so many ways other ways to have success i mean you look at that guy that um i can't think of his name right off the top of my head but the guy that wrote that song about the richmond you know north of richmond and you know that song blew up and it's just him singing and playing guitar in the woods and recording it that's it he right. puts it on and it becomes the number one song in the world i think at one point you know um and so yeah i mean anything is possible to a degree today. It just looks totally different than it did 25, 30 years ago. I mean, do you feel like you need to approach the making and marketing of an album differently now because of whatever's changed in the landscape or is it what you do, just what you do? Well, no, yeah, everything. Yes. Things change and evolve. I mean, like the way we're rolling this thing out, it's like re releasing uh, one song each month prior to the November 17th release date for the record. Um, that's unique. That's not, that wouldn't have been the case, you know, 25 years ago. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, things change due to streaming platforms and the fact that, you know, a lot of people don't buy records anymore. They consume them differently. And, you know, you can't put a record out and, and watch it run up the charts like you used to. And I mean, so many things are different. So, yeah, you have to change your game plan. But, you know, ultimately for a lot of artists, it, it, the be all end all is is uh, concerts. Right. So we make new albums so that we have uh, something to keep the fans engaged and new music for them to come here when we come to town to play concerts and you know we've got a, a strong reputation for being a great live band right like that's really what i built my career on besides the radio hits and things like that it's like you have hits of radio but you know the touring is what has carried us i think through the, the times changing you know because people know when they come to see one of our shows it's going to be a great concert they're going to walk away feeling like they got their money's worth and then so right and did you did you guys write this before the pandemic, but then record it after? So you're all in the well, same part, studio together? Or no, some work? of it was recorded before the pandemic. It got finished after. Um, but yeah, I mean, we had, the process had had started before the whole COVID thing. And did you do did you write volume two at the same time? Is that why this, <laughs> this is volume one? For the most part, yeah, it was all kind of. I mean, because I write and write and write and write when we sit down and write. And so, like, I'll write, you know, there's been albums where I've written 30 songs for a record and then there's 12 songs on the record. So we just write until we just have gotten to the point where we think we've written all we can write. And then we start honing in on what's actually going to make the record, you know. So. I knew that I had written, I had absolutely written two albums and more than two albums worth of songs. Um, and that I was going to, you know, end up recording two albums. I'm just trying, what I've been trying to do is get ahead of the curve. Used to be, we put a record out, you go tour for a year and a half, two years. And then as soon as you're done with that tour, you think you're going to relax. It's like, no, 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 we need another record. We got to keep things going. So you got to hurry up and go write another record. We got to get in the studio. We got to record that. Then you hit the road again. Right. You always kind of feel like you're trying to constantly just catch up, you know? And so a few years ago I started, trying to get ahead of the curve and getting to where, you know, I'm writing and recording even when I don't need to so that I don't ever feel like I'm behind the eight ball and I'm trying to play catch up. It's like, I'm all, I, I want to be ahead of schedule. And so, you know, I had made, I made myself two records and then I thought, you know, this would be a great thing to do a volume one and volume two, because, you know, you don't see that happen that often. And it's a compelling idea. And, uh, and they sound, you know, they could stand on their own, which they are, they're going to be two separate records, but like we could have named them two different records, but I think making them companion pieces makes for a more compelling story and musically it works as well. And then, you know, I've already got two other albums that are more than halfway done right now that I need huh. to finish. Yeah. So, so is volume two done? Is that ready to go basically? Yeah. Yeah, it's just we're doing the Atmos mixes for it right now. So as soon as the Atmos mix, it's already been mixed and mastered for the stereo stuff. So we just got to get the Atmos stuff done and then it'll be finished. So And then we have to determine when we're going to release it. Yeah, that's my next question. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's a year. I mean, we need the first one to come out and for it to, for the fans to have an opportunity to hear it and and enjoy it and for us to tour for that. So you know, I think it'll, I mean, uh, you, if you look at the track record, it's like every two years or so we put out a record. So I don't think what, well, we won't wait two years and maybe it'll be about a year from now that the next one will come out. Well, especially if you have two other ones in the works already, you're going to be like, I want to get this stuff out. Well, you know, yeah, we've, we're working on a new 30th anniversary 
Ledbetter Heights album. So you're re-recording we, that too? Yeah, and we've got a uh, a cover, a rock and roll cover album that's really was a lot of fun, and we still have to finish some of that up. And then I'm going uh, when I get off the road in October, between October and January, we're going to be writing all new songs for a whole nother record and maybe try and get it recorded, uh, while we're down between, uh, you know, October and January before we get back on the road towards the, you know, beginning of February. When people are blues artists like yourself, I've seen this with you where they say you're a torchbearer for the blues, like, like blues is some, you know, endangered species that you're keeping alive or something like that. Do you look at it like that? Or is it just like, look, it's just music and, you know, it's going to evolve in different ways. And sweet and low sounds like a pretty modern recording compared to some traditional blues. And it just, it moves forward like anything else. Well, it only moves forward if people are moving it forward. That's a fact, right? right. So I mean, at the same time, it is a fact that the genre has been around over a hundred years and, and, you know, those recordings by the forefathers of the blues and the people who really made it into a legitimate genre. It's like, you know, the, the Muddy Waters and Robert Johnson and Brian Lemon Jefferson and Lead Belly and BB King, Albert King, and all those guys, their recordings will are here forever. Right. So there'll always be an opportunity to enjoy blues and traditional blues and, you know, the original blues music and stuff like that. Um, but if you want to continue turning new people onto it and, and, and injecting uh, new energy, new blood, new ideas into it, and potentially turning younger people onto it, then somebody has got to be doing new things with it. And that's what I've been doing from the beginning of my career. And some people have embraced in the blues community. Some people have embraced that. And some people, uh, you know, vilified me for it because, you know, I'm not just playing, you know, one, four, five and, and, uh, you know, all night long and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, I'm turning new people onto the genre. And it's the same way I was turned onto it. It's like, you know, I, I, initially latched onto the more contemporary artists, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Jimi Hendrix, Billy Gibbons, right? Um, all of those kind of guys. And then because I was a fan of theirs, I heard them talk about the people that came before them that inspired them. And then that got me to go and do my homework and find out about the original blues guys, you know? And so that's how this stuff continues to evolve and to move forward. So, um, you know, it's never going to go away just like jazz music isn't going to go away, you know, but there's still people, new artists playing jazz music, but people have right. to continue. New artists have to be interested in it and they have to be doing something new. Otherwise it just all sounds the same. If you, if it all sounds the same, if it all looks the same, it, you know, then at what point does it, is it interesting? You know what I mean? It's like, to me, it's interesting. What we're doing is interesting, you know, because we're pushing the bounds and we're bringing, you know, that genre or what it has to offer into, you know, into, you know, 2023, 2024. What was the first album you bought with your own money? I, you know, man, this is like one of those lame answers, but I didn't have to buy records because my dad worked at a radio station. I know. That's why I asked about, that's why I specifically made it with your own money. <laughs> well, I, I think I had, I was probably forced to, after he stopped working at the, cause we would get it all. I mean, we had a massive record and CD collection because he got all music for free all the time. Right. Um, so it was probably after he stopped working at the radio station and record companies weren't sending him stuff anymore. So then I probably had to go buy, but you know, 
I would say it was probably Muddy Waters Hard Again, the Johnny, the album that Johnny Winter produced and and played on, which was from the year I was born, 1977, on Blue Sky Records, and it's my one of my favorite blues albums of all time, albums of all time. Um, and you know, I probably had bought many, many different copies of that over the years because i've you know would lose one or scratch up the cd and have to get another one or whatever before you could just have music on your phone you know yeah now i figured that there must be like one where your dad got all this cool music but there was like just the one that you thought oh, i just got to get this for myself because <laughs> he didn't get that one so no he i'm telling you there's not a record my dad didn't have up to a certain point that's a period that's pretty nice when you're when you're growing up as a music interested person to have that library at your disposal oh yeah dude it was unbelievable we might as well have owned a music store it was like uh, you know it was like tower records at my dad's house (laughs) that's great thanks so much it was really great talking to you you got to bring the bring the show to chicago soon enjoying the new album a lot and uh and good luck and i hope to talk again soon all right thanks that's all for episode 108 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Kenny Wayne Shepherd for taking us through his long career and changes in perspective. His new album, Dirt on My Diamonds, Volume 1, is out November 17th on Pro Vogue Records' Mascot Label Group. His tour kicks off February 6th in Orlando, Florida, with other dates in Florida, Texas, Oklahoma, Alabama, Nashville, and New York. Go to KennyWayneShepherd.net for more information, and you can buy merch and music there, too. Follow him on Instagram at Kenny Wayne Shepherd and Twitter at KW Shepherd. Caropop is produced by Chris Swake, who knows what trouble is and steers clear. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Caropop on Twitter and Instagram at Caropopcast. And you could follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit caropop.com where you can support this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming events and episodes. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop Conversation. Thanks.